Hi, everyone. Welcome to Boss Files. I'm Poppy Harlow. In this week's episode, she ran for president, was the first woman to run a Fortune 50 company, and a cancer survivor who says she is not afraid of anything anymore, Carly Fiorina. She's out with a new book, Find Your Way, Unleash Your Power and Highest Potential. She was CEO of Hewlett Packard during the dot-com boom and bust before being fired in what she calls a, quote, boardroom brawl. When you are leading change, you get some arrows in your back. Change is hard and resistance is real. And so it must be understood and managed strategically. I knew that then, I knew it even, I know it even more now. She's faced discrimination, survived breast cancer, and lived through the unimaginable loss of a child. Everything I feared in my life has happened to me. Not dying, but I feared my mother would go unexpectedly and I wouldn't be able to reach her and speak to her in time. It happened. I feared getting cancer. I feared a child dying. I feared bad headlines. Everything I've been afraid of in my life, I feared the strip club. Yes, the strip club. Wait until you hear that story. She calls herself a problem solver and says that's why she decided to run for president. After running against then-candidate Trump in 2016, does she think the president should now be impeached? I think it is vital that he be impeached. Do you recognize the Republican Party right now? I don't, actually. Will you run for president again? I have no idea. I don't think that's something I have an interest in doing right now, because the Republican Party right now seems to be all about pledging fealty to Donald Trump no matter what, and I'm just not in that place. Let's jump right in with Carly Fiorina. Carly Fiorina, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Poppy. So we're going to start in a place where most of your interviews don't start, and then we're going to back up into your childhood and, and all of those formative years. But I would like to begin because you were the first woman to run a Fortune 50 company. You were splashed across magazine covers, you became famous overnight, frankly. And then you say, I was fired in a boardroom brawl. Mm. So take me back to that morning. You're walking into HP. You know you're not going to be at that company anymore, and it's not going to be pretty. What was going through your head? Well, what was going through my head is, frankly, I was being fired over a matter of principle for me. I had board members who were leaking confidential board conversations to the media. I had board members who were trying to manage the company and put their favorite people into jobs that those favorite people couldn't do. And so I had issued an ultimatum of a sort to my board and said this behavior has to stop and if it doesn't, either you go or I go. And so the board got together and I knew fundamentally that the board would not have the courage to expel fellow board members. Um, And so I pretty much figured I was gonna be the one to go. My husband was assuring me, no, 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 they would never do that, they would never do that. So I was prepared for what came, but more importantly, I had made my own choices. I didn't feel like a victim. I could have said to them, oh, okay, all is forgiven. I could have done a lot of things to keep my job. I chose to stand on my principles because I thought it was important. And so it was terrible, obviously. Uh, The press that followed was terrible, but I was prepared and it didn't crush me. And unfortunately, a year later, those board members got fired and the company went through a terrible time. Do you think that it actually, eventually, made you a stronger person, perhaps a better candidate when you ran for president? I think any time we get through setback or difficulty or face our fears, we are stronger and better as a result of it. I think that's always true. And so at that time, my fear was, oh my gosh, if I get fired, the headlines will be horrible. They were. And they were. But my greater fear, honestly, Mm -hmm. was I'm going to sell my soul and be left trying to do a job Mm -hmm. without the requisite authority to do it. And that was worse to me. What is the most important decision you have ever made? 
to be true to yourself. It sounds so corny to not sell your soul. You know, I think in life we have to make that decision over and over again. Sure. The first time I made it was perhaps when I dropped out of law school because I figured it wasn't for me. The most visible time I made it perhaps was when I decided to let myself get fired on principle or maybe it was when I decided I wasn't going to support uh, a nominee or a president that I can't support. But the point is I think our difficult decisions are always the ones that perhaps cost us in the short term, yeah. but strengthen us in the long term. And define us. Really. Yes, and it's why I say to people all the time, don't sell your soul. No one will ever pay you back. Nothing will ever pay you back if you sell your soul. And there are many temptations to do so along the way. So let's go back to that brave decision to drop out of law school. You start your new book, Find Your Way, here. You are at your parents' house. You are in the shower, and yes. you have <laughs> the revelation in the shower. Important decisions, and you have a realization that you don't have to do this, but it's what your dad wants you to do, and it's what you think you should do. What happens? Well, you have to. I have to say that I was a parent pleaser. I was a people pleaser. That was my core competence. I pleased mm. people. And so I was the one in the family who always did what my parents said. I was the good girl. And so it wasn't just that I was disappointing them. It was that I was acting completely inconsistently with the way they had always expected me to act. Mm. And so I really was very afraid. It seems so silly now, but honestly, the thing that I was afraid of is they're not going to love me as much if I disappoint them in this way. Well, they didn't. He didn't take it well. No, they, neither one of them yeah. took it well. But, but on the other hand, the revelation I had in the shower was I can't live a life for someone else, and I don't like the life I'm living. So I had to dry off and suit up and march downstairs and say the words, I quit. Your dad was a law professor, law school dean, later appointed a, a deputy attorney general. I mean, here you are, not pleasing your parents, walking away from the path they think you're going to be on and need to be on. And, and your, your father said something that really struck me, which was essentially like, I don't know if you're going to amount to anything. What yeah. did he say? Yeah. He, of course, he denied it in later years. But <laughs> specific, I would not forget this. Specifically, what he said was, I'm very disappointed in mm. you. You know, dagger to the heart for a parent-pleasing child. I'm afraid you're not going to amount to anything. Now, in retrospect, thank goodness he didn't say, well, you can always get married or it doesn't really matter what you do. Right. I mean, I would have rather had him challenge me in the way that he did. Well, mm -hmm. what are you going to do mm. than sort of say it didn't matter? But it was harsh. <laughs> it was a harsh sure. assessment. Did you ever make him proud? Oh, my gosh, yes. There yes, go. and, and it is why my dad would deny he ever said it. <laughs> Um, we parents have selective memory. Yes, it, um, yes. Of course, I made him proud, yeah. and um, I made my mother proud, and and I hope I still make them proud. What was she like? What was her, what was her life like? Because you, you, you talk about in the book something that I, I believe you said she told you. What you are is God's gift to you. What you make of yourself is your gift to God. So my mother in another era would have been a CEO, perhaps. She had a very unhappy childhood. Her mother died when she was 10. She was raised by a very um, callous stepmother. Her father did not support her desire to go on and be educated in college, said it wasn't for girls, so she ran away from home at 18 and joined mm. the Women's Air Corps in World War II. Pretty gutsy decision, just got on a bus and left. I, I'd say. So she was a gutsy woman and had a lot of um, what we would call rectitude. You know, that's an old-fashioned word, but my mother had a lot of rectitude and a lot of, she knew the difference between right and wrong. She never cut corners. She could be aggravating in that way sometimes. Um, but I think it's where I get it from. Um, a sense of right and wrong. 
she also had a lot of zest. She was a great party thrower. She was a wonderful cook. She was a wonderful hostess. She was an amazing woman. It reminds me of something that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg talks about, and that is, oh my goodness, well, that's my mom reminder. <laughs> there you go. We can keep that in the podcast. That's real life. Um, yep. At least it wasn't live television. Don't forget your kid. <laughs> Don't forget to pick your kid up at school, Poppy. But on a more serious note, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg talks about her mother in a similar way in that in another era she would have been this and could have been this and society would have afforded her those opportunities that it has afforded you and I. And she talks about striving to achieve so much in part because of that, what her mother you know, wasn't given the chance to. Is the same true for you? I don't think so in that sense. My mother ultimately she was an artist and ultimately she went back to get her masters in art in her 60s and um, began to show her work later in her mm. life i think honestly her passion was art mm. it's definitely not my passion so i don't think i was um, focused on um, making the most positive contribution i could uh, for my mother, uh -huh. but I do think both my mother and father, the message they always delivered to me was do not waste the gifts you have been given. Sure. Do not squander yeah. your potential. Whatever you want to do, whatever your potential allows you to do, mm. go do it. And you, you often repeat and think about that Mary, Mary Oliver quote, you know, that you have this one wild and precious life. Yes. And I think it's why my parents, although they were shocked and disappointed by my announcement, I'm quitting, I have no plan what I'm going to do, I'm going <laughs> to go back and type and file. I think at another level they understood mm -hmm. what was going on and mm -hmm. it's why they were more gentle after that and gave me some room to maneuver. Stay tuned how Carly Fiorina overcame fear and why she says she is not afraid of anything anymore. There have also been a number of very formative moments in your life, but incredibly difficult personal struggles. Um, first with, with breast cancer. What was the moment like that your doctor, I assume, told yes. you face to face or called you? I had gone in for a routine physical. I had found a lump on my, under my arm. It was a couple weeks after a clear mammogram. Ladies, do yourself exams, I'm here to tell you. My doctor had said, oh, I don't think it's anything, but we'll just do a quick biopsy. And I went in for a physical expecting nothing. And she came in looking literally pale and said she was clearly very concerned. And she said, you have an aggressive form of cancer. We don't know what kind. We have to begin tests immediately. Um, it's horrifying news. It's frightening news. And what I do when I'm shocked and feel out of my depth is I start asking questions. Sure. So I started asking questions sort of to keep myself calm. Did you cry? No, not then. And I... I actually don't recall crying at all until my second surgery. I ended up having 11 rounds of surgery. It was a very difficult process. And I remember being rolled into the operating room for the second time. And that was the first time I cried. And I also remember um, a nurse, I don't know her name, I never saw her again, but I will never forget her face and she looked down at me and she said just what I needed to hear in just the right way at that time and she gave me peace when I needed it. They are amazing nurses. I, I often there think they don't get enough credit. The world. There are a lot of amazing people. And that's why I wrote this book actually honestly probably because people are capable of such impact more than they know. Mm. It's when people think true. they can't make a difference, that they don't make a difference. Yeah. That nurse made all the difference for me that all day. All of it. And my guess is she's made all the difference in the world to so many people. You're, you're also a parent, and you and your husband, Frank, suffered unimaginable loss, losing your daughter at, in her 30s. Mm. 
and losing her to drug addiction. Mm. Could you share with me what you're comfortable sharing uh, about that and how it has shaped you? Well, um, first I would say, like probably a lot of parents, we were in denial for a long time. You know, it, it started out as what we thought was, you know, maybe too much drinking in college and maybe too much partying in her 20s. But I know a lot of people in their 20s who party a lot. And so we sort of, um, we were in denial for too long. And um, then it got to the point where it was clear this was a complex multi-substance addiction. Um, made worse, honestly, in many ways by the uh, predilection of doctors to just prescribe things. You know, the truth is you can go see a psychiatrist and get prescribed stuff in 10 or 15 minutes. And so she got caught up in the same sort of addiction that so many have gotten caught up in. Um, we spent many years and many tears <laughs> and many hours trying to help her. And of course, in the end, um, an addict has to make a decision themselves. You can't do it for them. Um, for many years, I couldn't talk about it. And I, number one, because I couldn't get through it. Mm -hmm. But secondly, honestly, because I think there was a part of me that was ashamed, that was embarrassed, that was um, afraid that people would think, wow, what a terrible parent you must have been, a terrible mother, couldn't you have done something? And so at a certain point, I decided I, I have to be able to speak about this because maybe it'll be helpful to someone else. Um, and I think it has been helpful to others, and so that has been helpful to us. Um, well, I have spoken to countless parents who have lost their children in the past few years because of the opioid epidemic in this country who are all living through what you felt, that shame, that inability to really talk about it because they didn't even know that their child was even using any, any substance. What is your message to America? Because this is the epidemic now, but it will be something else later. And it, it, it hits every socioeconomic level, every race, every, you know, every neighborhood. Uh, it, is a re it is a crisis in this country. And as, a, as someone who has run a big company, run for president, maybe running for something again, we'll talk about that in a while. <laughs> but, you know, what, what, what is your message to America and to those in power at this point about addiction in this country and this epidemic? Well, first, in terms of treatment and recovery, I think addiction is the classic case of what I talk about all the time, which is people closest to the problem know best how to solve it. The best counselors are people who have overcome addiction themselves. The best programs are those that are grounded in a local community so that someone who gets through recovery actually has a community to return to. Part of what has to happen. So many of the fixes are local, and it's why from a policy point of view, I think more money needs to flow locally. There are some things the federal government can do. HIPAA laws get in the way, honestly. I mean, HIPAA laws were designed to protect people's privacy, but what the impact they actually have sometimes too often is to isolate someone from everyone who's trying to help them. I can remember desperately trying to find Right. the doctors that our daughter was going but to. But you can't. But I can't. And when we finally found someone, they said, I can't tell you anything. They at least had the heart to say, I can listen to you, but I can't tell you anything. And so part of what happens with addicts is they get isolated and they get, um, they spend all their time with people like them and they're divorced from those who can help them.
and it is an enormous waste of potential. And I am delighted that the state's attorneys general are suing these drug companies because there's no question that just as the cigarette companies knew that cigarettes were addictive, the drug companies knew these drugs were addictive and they did not level with people and they were overprescribed and the medical community is complicit as well. You grew up with a fear of death. Yes, isn't that weird? As a child. And you've gotten over it, I should note. <laughs> you told a reporter for the National Review, I believe it was, that when you were running for president, you said, I'm not afraid of anything anymore. So there's a lot of progress. Why were you scared to die when you were you know, young? I don't know, but I, in thinking about it as an adult, I think it must have been because I knew that my father's father had died when he was young and that my mother's mother had died when she was young. And so there was this sense of sudden sure. traumatic loss that suffused the family lore. Mm. And so first my fear was my parents are going to die suddenly. And then my fear was, well, I'm going to die suddenly. I think yeah. that must be why. So how did you go from being afraid of dying young to as a candidate for president being able to say, I'm not afraid of anything anymore? Really? Nothing? Nothing pra scares Carly Fiorina? Practice. Honestly, what practice. do you mean practice? What I mean by practice is practice in overcoming fears. Everything I feared in my life has happened to me. Not dying, but I feared mm -hmm. my mother would go unexpectedly and I wouldn't be able to reach her and speak to her in time. It happened. I feared getting cancer. I feared a child dying. I feared bad headlines. Everything I've been afraid of in my life, I feared the strip club. I feared looking like a fool. I feared all these things. Some of those fears were profound. Some of them were silly. But the point is, every time I got through one of them, yeah. I was less afraid. And so practice makes perfect when it comes to learning courage and becoming fearless. Okay, so you brought up the strip club, which I was obviously going to bring up. But for those who haven't read your book yet, this is the moment when you're working your way up the corporate ladder. Uh, and this is where you argue, name your fear. <laughs> so who took you to the strip club and why? And yes, why did it well, eventually help you? Well, first of all, I wasn't working my way up the corporate ladder. You're being far too generous. You were. No, I was at the bottom of the corporate <laughs> ladder, and I had no notion of working my way up the corporate ladder. This was my first job outside of the secretarial pool and finally getting an MBA. I mean, I was a nobody. I had, honestly, my prayer at the end of each day was, please let me keep my job. I thought I was going to get fired every day because I didn't know what I was doing. So I wasn't working my way up. But my colleague... <clears throat> who I had been paired with, and you can imagine he was not thrilled with this. Who is this, you know, young woman? She doesn't, she can't teach me anything or bring any value. And he kind of wanted to scare me out of my job. And so he did honestly what he always did. He always went to a strip club for lunch with these particular clients. That's what they did. And he thought, why should I change it for her? So he said, we're going to the strip club. You can't come. Sorry, you're not going to meet the clients. I was scared, really scared. I was scared of looking stupid, which I did. I was scared of going into a strip club. I'd never been in such a situation. But the more I thought about it, what I realized I was even more afraid of is not being given the chance to do my job. Mm. And I knew he was trying to scare me out of doing my job. And so I decided I got to show up. I got to show up. And you know, you've heard the old saying in life, showing up is half the battle. It actually is half the battle. Or more, I'd argue it's more. So I showed up. And once I showed up, it wasn't as terrifying as I thought. And the young women were very kind to me. And everything in the office changed because people decided I had a little more guts than they realized. And they decided he was kind of a classless guy for putting me in the situation in the first place. Again, courage, you went. When have you been most courageous in your life? And when have you been least courageous? <sighs> I don't know. Uh, the thing that I, the reason I'm hesitating over that question is I do think I am least courageous 
when I don't stop and think about it. Mm. I think courage takes reflection. It takes introspection. So if I react in the moment to something, I am not likely to be my best. If I take the time to think it through, I'm likely to be stronger and more brave. So the strip club, my immediate reaction was to say, okay, I won't come. But something told me not to say anything. And that gave me the time to think. And I, I thought a long time. Hmm. I thought a long time about getting fired from HP. I thought a long time about dying with cancer. I, um, one of the things I worry about in our culture, we're such an instantaneous yes. culture, but courage takes time, introspection, mm -hmm. reflection. Mm -hmm. Actually, wise choices take time, mm -hmm. introspection mm -hmm. and reflection. To be our best takes a pause. Something my, my mother often says is, Poppy, big decisions make themselves because I like to make them with the facts and the data and quickly. And her point in that is, it takes a lot of time for you to finally realize and know yourself what the right decision is. Well, I think that's true. And I also think most big decisions, most, let me say it, most big decisions are tough decisions. Tough decisions are frequently not obvious, actually. Yeah. Lots of arguments can be made. Sure. Um, and so they do take time to figure yeah. out, what do I actually think? So before we move on, I want to finally hear about Ghana and termite hills. <laughs> well, I had the wonderful privilege of moving around a lot when I was growing up. I mean, it was hard in many ways, but yeah. looking back on it, it was a gift. And one of the places my father took us was to Ghana in West Africa. How old and were you? I was 15. And... Um, I remember driving down a road in Ghana with a Ghanaian group of Ghanaian friends and seeing these huge mountains of dirt on either side of the road. I mean huge, taller than the ceiling here. What are those? Those are termite hills. Oh wow, that's so amazing. How do these little things make these big hills? And so my Ghanaian friend tells me how termites work and they have a path and every day they go out and they push their dirt on along this path and they come back. They go out they come back and it's the same path their whole life wow what a terrible life and then my wise Ghanaian friend said he wasn't old but he was wise he said you know people can be a lot like termites and that's so stuck with me because it's true because we all get our heads down and we're pushing our dirt day in day out we got a lot of dirt to push every day you got to pick up your daughter you got to finish this we all have our dirt and mm. we kind of get our heads down sure and we go sure and what we don't do often enough is pick our heads up and look around and maybe pause mm. and observe and reflect and reconsider mm. that maybe, just maybe, we ought to go this way a little bit. Well, this is why you talk about having a, you know, a path, not a plan. Yes. I have a hard time buying this argument that you make that you had no plan in life, but it's true. Well. I have plans for many things. I have a plan to grow a business. I have a plan to turn a business around. There are things you must have plans for. But in terms of saying, this is where I want to be yeah. in my life by this point, I have never done that. And what I've seen... Except maybe when you were running for president. No. The I, Oval Office. You were not envisioning the Oval oh, Office. Oh, well, certainly. You have a goal <laughs> in mind. It's not that you don't have goals in mind. It's that five years before that, I hadn't said, I'm going to go run for president. But what I've learned in my own life is if you are focused on making the biggest positive impact possible in the here and now, opportunities are going to come your way. What I've seen is so many people get so fixated on their plan. Mm. I am going to finish law school no matter what sure. because my parents expect me to. Sure. That they miss a lot of things in life and maybe what they miss most of all is actually what, they were what meant they're to made do. of and what they're meant to do. Up next, will Carly Fiorina run for president again? I ask her. So let's talk politics. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> you knew this was coming. Why did you run for president? I ran for president because 
I'm a problem solver, and I think we have a lot of problems that aren't getting solved. I think we have way too many professional politicians. I think political parties have captured the system. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, George Washington told us in 1789, beware the rise of political parties. They will come to care only about winning. And we're there. What politicians care about is winning. The thing is, the dynamic of winning mm -hmm. is not the same thing as the dynamic of problem solving. And so we have festering problems that we argue about every election. I also thought it would be helpful. The government is a big, complicated beast. I know something about it. I've done a lot of policy work in various parts of the government. I actually know a lot about big, complicated bureaucracies. And what happens is we have this thin veneer of politicians over this enormous bureaucracy, mm -hmm. and neither one functions very well. Did you think you were going to win? I thought the odds were incredibly long. Incredibly long, but long odds have never stopped me. There you go. I, I thought I could make a difference in the conversation. I hope I did. And I also believed it was a year when people were willing to look at outsiders. And I think that's I think you were right. true. And I think there continue to be outsiders. And I think that's a good thing. Like Mike Bloomberg? Well, we'll see. I mean, that's for Democratic Wh primary voters to, to decide. Which, I think which you are not one of. But I, I'm not one of. And I think. You know, would he Bloomberg. make a good? Would Mike Bloomberg make a, a better president than Donald Trump? You know, I think uh, Bloomberg actually knows something about running an organization. I don't think Donald Trump does. I think a family business and the way he—I don't think he is a successful business person. Actually, I think his bankruptcies demonstrate that. Uh, I think a family business is very different than running a large publicly traded business. So I think Bloomberg clearly has business acumen and execution skills. On the other hand, I think Bloomberg's um, vulnerability is people think he's trying to buy the office and people it, resent that, is, I is think. He? Well, I don't know. I mean, if he thinks ads will do it instead of pressing the mm. flesh, uh, I think uh, he could be accused of that. What was your biggest surprise during your run for president? My biggest surprise. Oh, surprise. Um, well, Donald Trump was a big surprise, honestly, um, it, at many levels. It was a surprise to me that he ran. More than that, it was a surprise to me how he captured every minute of the conversation mm -hmm. from the second he came down the escalator. The media did not want to talk about anything but Donald Trump from the second he came down the elevator. And that remains true. That remains true. So that was a surprise. Um, I, I think a second surprise, though, honestly, was I love talking to voters. People talk about, oh my gosh, campaigning is such a drag. I loved campaigning. I loved the voters. I mm. loved Iowa, New Hampshire. I mean, it, it was a wonderful adventure that I wouldn't trade. Tell me about the morning you knew you had to get out. Oh, it was obvious. I mean, I'm a realist. You know, I, I, uh, I've said I don't mind long odds, but I don't uh, tilt at windmills. I don't swing at fences. I'm not an idealist. I'm, I'm pretty pragmatic. And it was very clear. I mean, we had had a very disappointing showing in Iowa. Mm -hmm. We had a disappointing showing in New Hampshire. We had outlasted senators and governors and everything else. But it was clear there was no path. So it was time to get out. Everything that I have read about you and heard you say recently, Carly, makes me, if I were a betting woman, which I sometimes am, <laughs> say that I would put money on you running again. Will you run for president again? I have no idea. And I'm not trying to be coy. I have no idea. You know, um, first of all, uh, because I'm a realist, because I'm a pragmatist, it's not simply about me making a decision. It's about many other things in the environment, many other things in the context. Politics right now, uh, running as a Republican, I, I don't think that's something I have an interest in doing right now, because the Republican Party right now seems to be all about pledging mm -hmm. fealty to Donald Trump no matter what, and I'm just not in that place. <laughs> do, do you, do you speaking of the Republican Party, do you recognize the Republican Party right actually. now? I don't, actually. I don't. I have spoken publicly about the fact that in this country, we pledge allegiance to a flag and we pledge an oath of loyalty to the Constitution, not to a party and not to a president. And so 
I think that's all about politics, the politics of winning. The party is focused on winning, just as Democrats are too, by the way. And so I, I think Republicans are behaving the way they do because they think it's going to help them win. You know, President, uh, both President Bushes, President uh, George H.W. Bush and, and, and President uh, Bush 43 did not vote for President Trump. Mm. Did you, Carly Fiorina, vote for President Trump? Yeah, I actually did, and I've been very disappointed. I did. Um, I felt that Hillary Clinton also was corrupt. I think there's a lot of evidence of that. I thought I did not agree with her from a policy point of view. I thought she was dismissive and disrespectful to too many issues uh, and too many people, honestly. I thought she acted entitled to the job. And I thought, well, all right, we're going to give this guy a chance. Um, I must say I have been bitterly disappointed. Will President Trump get your vote in 2020, um, assuming he's on the ticket? You know, honestly, it depends who the Democrats put up, and I won't go any further than that right now. Not it. Biden, It depends Trump. who the Democrats put up. So let's just play a few scenarios. Joe Biden no, versus not. Trump. Mike Bloomberg? Let's really not, because, again, <laughs> it's one of the things I learned in politics, honestly, yes. is never answer a hypothetical. So there, but there is a, I hear you. There is a scenario, though, in which President Trump does not get your vote. And, yes. and, and a candidate from the Democratic Party could. That's yes, a possibility. There is a scenario. And, okay. and one of the reasons for that, I think it's worth explaining why, because people evaluate these things differently. And I'm on the record saying this. Character matters. Conduct counts. So I will have people say to me, yes, but the economy is doing great. Yep, it is, and I give them credit for it. Um, no more than any president should get credit, but he's done some of the right things. Um, I agree with him on some of the issues. I disagree with him strongly on others. Mm. But for me, mm -hmm. uh, character matters. Character is destiny for a party, for a nation, for a president. Conduct matters. And um, some of this conduct, like publicly berating a decorated war veteran who shows up in response to a lawfully issued subpoena of Congress, I think that conduct is not just unbecoming. Hmm. I think it's destructive to our republic. So looking net-net, you compliment him on the economy and some other things, take major issues with other uh, moves he's made and things he said. Has President Trump, who did eventually get your vote in, uh, in the last election, has he been a net positive for America? I don't know. I think the jury's out. And I think it's one of those things where time will tell. The economy, by the way, Obama gets some credit for the economy, too. I mean, presidents take, in many ways, too much blame and too much credit sure. for the economy. So, sure. But he's, Trump has undoubtedly done some of the right things. I do think that the systematic... Uh, tearing down mm. of people, institutions, political opponents will have long-lasting damage if it goes on uh, for much longer. So I think time will tell. What was it like to run for president against Donald Trump? And then we have a few clips that I'd like to play for you in a moment. Well, as I say, Donald Trump sucked all the oxygen out of the room immediately. And by the way, the media is complicit in this. And one of the things that I think never, ha we talked about introspection. Mm -hmm. um, I think we would be better off if the Democratic Party would be introspective and say, you know, here's some things we did that lost us the election. Mm. I think it, we would be better off if the media would be introspective and say, Here's some things we did that helped him win. I think it would definitely be better off if Donald Trump would be introspective. But introspection and reflection is lacking in general. You met with him after he won. Yes, I did. During the transition, right? Yes, you went I to did. Trump Tower. You met with him, as, as the reporting is, about uh, the position of director of national intelligence. Is that right? Uh, we never talked about a specific position. There was all kinds of, there were people who wanted me. Did he want to hire you? Position. I don't think so. So why do you think he wanted to meet with you? Um, because I think it's what you do. Uh, I think he had people who were telling him he should meet with me. Yeah. Uh, I think he 
uh, smartly understood it was important for him to meet with all of his opponents, and mm -hmm. I believe he did. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think when the president-elect asks you to come meet with him, you meet with him. Did he apologize for no. what, what he had said about you? No. Nor did I expect it, nor did I ask for it. You told my friend and colleague, Essie Cup on this network, that President Trump, quote, wasn't the only man I faced nastiness from on the campaign trail. Who else? And what did they do? What did they say? Well, first, let me just say, I faced this all my life. Oh, I, I, I mean, know. men making comments about my appearance, positive or negative, I'm, goodness, been there, done that, honestly. When my campaign staff told me what he had said about me, my reaction was to laugh. It was like, well, of course he would say that. So um, they were more upset about it than I was. The example that I will give you is I was in a debate and I, I was, I um, yeah. told a story from my personal life and a very well-known, he shall remain nameless, he knows who he is, a very well-known radio host, conservative radio host, tweets out, Carly Fiorina just played the vagina card. I guess he said that because I was a woman telling my story. But you know, really? I mean, really? So this stuff goes on all the time. Um, in truth, Donald Trump gave me an opportunity, but I never expected an apology for him. What opportunity did he give he you? He gave me an opportunity in the clip that you're Let's about play to play. It. Let's play it for people. <laughs> Ms. Fiorina, I do want to ask you about this. In an interview last week in Rolling Stone magazine, Donald Trump said the following about you, quote, look at that face. Would anyone vote for that? Can you imagine that, the face of our next president? Mr. Trump later said he was talking about your persona, not your appearance. Please feel free to respond what you think about his persona. <laughs> You know, it's interesting to me, Mr. Trump said that he heard Mr. Bush very clearly and what Mr. Bush said. I think women all over this country heard very clearly what Mr. Trump said. I think she's got a beautiful face and I think she's a beautiful woman. Yeah. By the way, the, 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 you know, there are all kinds of teachable moments. People don't really uh, focus on the second piece of that. But Donald Trump said, I think she has a beautiful face. And I did not acknowledge him in any way. And the reason for that is because his commentary about my appearance, positive or negative, is irrelevant and inappropriate. Period. So he thought he was going to make it all better by saying he thought I was beautiful? No, you missed the point. You missed the point. An interviewer once said to me later, well, isn't it nice when a man tells a woman she's beautiful? I said, it depends. Mm -hmm. If my husband tells me I look beautiful, absolutely. If a friend says I look beautiful, absolutely. If an opponent on a debate stage mm -hmm. or a business colleague mm -hmm. says I look beautiful, not so much. So... We have one more clip to play for you, if we could, about, uh, this is a, a snippet of debating the president. Ms. Fiorina, you were CEO of Hewlett Packard. Donald Trump says you, quote, ran HP into the ground. You laid off tens of thousands of people. You got viciously fired. For voters looking to somebody with private sector experience to create American jobs, why should they pick you and not Donald Trump? I led Hewlett Packard through a very difficult time, the worst technology recession in 25 years. The NASDAQ stock index fell 80%. It took 15 years for the stock index to recover. We had very strong competitors who literally went out of business and lost all of their jobs in the process. Despite those difficult times, we doubled the size of the company. We quadrupled its top line growth rate. We quadrupled its cash flow. We tripled its rate of innovation. Yes, we had to make tough choices. And in doing so, we saved 80,000 jobs, went on to grow to 160,000 jobs, and now Hewlett-Packard is almost 300,000 jobs. The head of the Yale Business School, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, wrote a paper recently, one of the worst tenures for a CEO that he has ever seen, ranked one of the top 20 in the history of business 
The company is a disaster and continues to be a disaster. They still haven't recovered. In fact, today on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, they fired another 25 or 30,000 people saying we still haven't recovered from the catastrophe. When Carly says the revenues went up, that's because she bought Compaq. It was a terrible deal, and it really led to the destruction of the company. Now, one other company before that was Lucent. Carly was at Lucent before that. And Lucent turned out to be a catastrophe also. So I only say this, she can't run any of my companies. What was it like debating candidate Trump? What did you learn? You know, I think that clip that you showed was one of the few times when Donald Trump was actually debating. Um, I quite enjoyed debate. Um, I debated other candidates on the, on the field as well. Um, you need to be prepared. You need to know what you think and know what you want to say. Um, but I think many times Donald Trump distracted from the debate um, by making personal comments. He made personal comments about all kinds of people, not just me. He was an equal opportunity insulter, and he remained so. So I didn't take it personally then. Um, so honestly, no different than debating anyone else on that stage. You have to be focused and clear and in the moment. You enjoyed it. I do enjoy debate. Coming up, why Carly Fiorina thinks it is, quote, vital that President Trump be impeached. On impeachment, before we move on, you have called before Nancy Pelosi very wise. There are words in the past. This country is in the middle of impeachment yes. proceedings and an effort uh, to remove the president from office. Um, do you believe President Trump should be impeached and removed from office? I think he is going to be impeached, and I think he won't be removed from office. Should he be removed I mean, I from think, office? If you were, you ran well, for Senate. Again, if you were a, in the Senate, it's a hypothetical. If if it, well, it's a hypothetical for you as you're not a senator to vote. But this is going to a Senate trial. Yeah, I think it is vital that he be impeached. Whether removed this close to an election, I don't know. But I think the conduct is impeachable. And what I regret is that the principles that are being debated in this impeachment trial, separation of powers, abuse of power, obstruction of Congress, those principles are not as immediate or intense as partisanship or people's belief that um, the policies that I care about impact me personally. So for example, the, the, there is a large pro-life community in this country and they feel disrespected by the Democrat Party. And my prediction is they will stand by Trump through everything because that issue mm -hmm. is not only important to them, but it's personal to them. It is notable that you, a Republican who has run for office for the Senate as a Republican, for president as a Republican, who may run again as a Republican, is saying it is, quote, vital that he be impeached. What are you hearing from your Republican friends in the House and the Senate? Yeah, because I, it is crickets. Yeah, I, I don't. Um, my prediction would be that Republicans don't break ranks. I think. What is uh, your message to them? I'm not sure they're listening to my message. If, honestly, if, if they were, do but you have a message to them? I think my message is in this country. Hanging on to a job is not the most important thing. In this country, we don't pledge allegiance to a party or to a president. In this country, principles matter. And in particular, the principle that we have co-equal branches of government and that no one is above the law and that it is Congress's duty to oversee and to investigate the executive branch is a vital principle. Our Constitution was based on a fundamental belief 
that power concentrated is power abused. And we have to stand up for that principle. In the near term, it may cost. But in the long term, those principles are everything. That's a pretty clear message. Finally, in the Republican Party, before we leave politics, there are so few Republican women in Congress. Right now, there are only 13 Republican women in the House, eight Republican women in the Senate. That is down from 2016. Why aren't there more Republican women being elected in this country? Because I think um, the party does not value, does not send a signal of respect to a whole bunch of people, women included. I mean, I think there is a reason why women, um, people of color, young people, don't feel affinity for the Republican Party. It's because the brand, the way business has been conducted, sends a message. We don't value you and we don't respect you. Now I say that as a proud pro-life woman. It's not about pro-life or pro-choice. It's about how women and um, people of color and young people are addressed, are sought out, or not. By the same token, the reason Democrats lost in 2016 is there was a swath of people who felt disrespected and devalued. Politics is personal, so it starts with a real fundamental, do I feel like you personally respect me? Mm. And until Republicans decide that that's a problem, it's not going to get better. What does the Republican Party today stand for? I don't know. Loyalty to Trump is what I think it stands for. And what has sadly, what sadly. Ha, what has the arc of the last three years well, taught look, you? And what do you want the party to be the in, Republican in five party, years? Here's here's what I believe. Okay, I, the Republican Party was the party of Abraham Lincoln. I think I believe three things that I thought the party stood for. Number one, everyone has potential, and we should not be defined by our circumstances. Mm -hmm. Number two. People closest to the problem know best how to solve it. Mm -hmm. So let people close to the problem solve it instead of taking the problem away from them and putting it in some gigantic government bureaucracy 3,000 miles away. And number three, power concentrated is power abused, always. It doesn't matter how well intended the holder of power is. Power concentrated is power abused. Those are the things I believe. I don't know that the Republican Party believes in those things anymore. They certainly don't act well, that way. They used to be uh, clear-eyed about the danger from Russia or China or North Korea. I don't know that they are anymore. So, so you'll have to ask them what they believe. I know what I believe. And having said, I mean, have, ha you saying that, it, it's significant, especially given you're a member of the party. Are you? Do you still consider yourself a Republican? And if you run again well, for any office? Well, I haven't changed my registration. Okay, Let's so say there's that. that. Well, then if you, if you do run for political office again, will you run as a Republican? Or has I don't the, know. I don't know if I'm running, and I don't know if I will. So has the party potentially lost you? We'll see. I don't make rash decisions, but um, my party designation doesn't define me, honestly. It never has. Um, I've never felt that the party was owed my loyalty. Mm. Um, I do believe that in this country, citizens are sovereign, that we are actors in our own right. Um, I have voted for Democrats in years past. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time in 2020 if that's what I ended up doing. Mm. Uh, but I do think the party Forget Carly Fiorina. I, I, they don't much care what I think right now anyway, in, most, in all probability. I think what the party needs to think about is power in the near term is great. But what about the long term? What about the long term? And one of the lessons I know all the way back to my parents, and I talk about in my book, Character. Character is knowing that how you do things is as important as what you do. Of course. So how you win mm -hmm. matters as much as the fact that you win. And so I would just, if anyone's listening, I would just ask my well, Republican hope they're listening to think about <laughs> how they're getting things done right now. Let's end on 
HP, where your fame really began and an experience that I know was difficult at the end, but obviously shaped you greatly. When you look back, what has hindsight taught you about your time at HP and being the best leader you can be? So it has taught me a little bit as in that earlier clip. When you are leading change, you get some arrows in your back. Change is hard. And resistance is real. And so it must be understood and managed strategically. I knew that then, I knew it even I know it even more now. The second thing is when you're different, it's different. And I didn't really understand that going in. You know, I was so shocked on my first day in the job that all anybody wanted to talk about was the fact that I was a woman. I mean, I was prepared to talk about HP labs and our products. No, nobody wanted to talk about that. All they wanted to talk about, oh my gosh, she's a woman. And when you're different, everything is different. The expectations are different. The scrutiny is different. The criticism is different. Everything's different. Um, it's true for women, it's true for anyone who's different. And so that um, makes everything, honestly, more difficult in many ways. And the third thing I would say is, if you are focused on something larger than yourself, your fame, your headlines, which I was, I was focused on it's not that I don't care about those things, but I was focused on doing the best I could for HP. Then, when the tough times come for you, they're not as tough. I'm very proud of my time at HP. I'm very proud of what we accomplished. Employees lifted me up. They do to this day. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wouldn't trade any of it. The Harvard Business Review wrote about your legacy in 2015, and these are two parts that stood out to me. I wonder what you think. Several executives who worked with her found her to be inspiring, a rock star, a dazzling performer on stage. And it went on to say, she was the disruptive leader that she needed to be at the time, but she missed one key element. She never took the time to develop rapport with individual employees and therefore never got buy-in or support for her initiatives. Yeah, I... Um, that was kind of the storyline of, um, it was the storyline in the press for sure, and the proof point that I would give you to demonstrate how wrong that is, mm -hmm. is we pulled off the largest technology merger in history successfully. The complexity of that integration was staggering and it doesn't happen unless employees are bought in because it happens not because of what the CEO says on stage mm. not at all it happens because employees do the hard work that no one's paying attention to outside the company day in day out day in day out there's a reason most mergers and acquisitions fail mm. it's because everyone's looking at the CEO giving a speech and no one's looking at what the employees are actually doing you're talking about the compact merger obviously a lot has happened since then HP has broken up into two separately traded companies you talked about the layoffs that came as a result of the merger in the debate do you look at it now in 2019 as a success would you do it again Yes, I would. Now, of course, context is everything. Sure. 2018 and 19 are a very different context in the technology space than 2001 was. Mm -hmm. But coming off of the dot-com boom and going through the dot-com bust, mm -hmm. we needed to be a systems player to survive. The pure PC companies were going out of business. The pure software companies were going out of business. The pure router companies were, everyone was becoming a systems company. We needed to as well. That merger not only succeeded, it succeeded for a very long time. So I'm getting- And that's because employees bought in actually. I'm getting the two minute warning. Quick answers on these, but important questions. What's next for Carly Fiorina? 
So I am doing work that I find enormously fulfilling and I think is making a huge difference. We are working in companies and communities every single day, mm. teaching people how to become leaders in their own right, solve the problems right in front of them, be more effective team prop team players mm -hmm. because we got a lot of problems and a lot of institutions that are supposed to be solving them aren't and so instead of looking up and saying somebody else better solve this problem my uh, message to people and I think we're helping them achieve this mm -hmm. is look inside yourself and look around you who is your hero <laughs> my mother will always be my hero we will stay tuned We'll see if another political run is in the cards. I sincerely appreciate your time today. Thanks thank very much. Thank you, Poppy. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Boss Files. I would love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode and people you want to hear from. So leave a review and follow me on social media at Poppy Harlow CNN. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.